0: Well, isn't that what it's all about? Making room in our life for God. And, you know, throughout the year, but especially uh, this Christmas season. And maybe you've not done that yet. And at the conclusion of this talk, in the next few moments, I'm going to give you that opportunity to just say, Yes, Jesus, come into my life. I'm making room in my life for you. I want to receive you as the Savior and the leader of my life. We've come now to the third and final part of our Christmas series. And um, what we're going to talk about today is just so really important, but I want to go into it a little bit different way. I like comedy. A lot of you are not going to be surprised by that. I know a lot of you like dramatic movies or dramatic series, and I'm okay with that, but I just like comedy. How many of you like uh, comedy movies, movies that are filled with comedy? How many of you like Hallmark movies? Huh? You know, I, I guess I would. I, I don't really watch a whole lot, but the little parts of home, it, is it just me? Are, is it the same theme every movie, and they just change the faces and names? Is that what it is? I'm just checking. I don't know that. The guys are nodding. The ladies aren't quite so sure. I'm just, I'm just meddling. I'm just asking. Uh, years ago, there was a comedian that he had this routine. In his routine, he would talk about the difference between football and baseball. Uh, football, as we will know, uh, tends to be a much more rugged sport. Baseball, it's more gentle, I guess. And I'm going to read this, and it will actually lead us. If you can Believe we can go to a comedian uh, to the topic of the uh, the topic of today. We're actually going to do that, and I want to just share it with you. I'll just read it now, and the words of this comedian. I'm going to read it verbatim. Verbatim. Football, he said, is played on a gridiron. Baseball is played in a park, kind of a fun place to play. Football players wear helmets. Baseball players wear caps. In football, there's a specialist who comes in to kick something. In baseball, there's a specialist who comes in to relieve someone. Football has a two-minute warning. Baseball has the seventh inning stretch. Football has sudden death. Baseball gets extra innings, not just innings, but extra innings. In football, the runner will give you the stiff arm. In baseball, the runner gets to slide. Wee, he said. But the biggest difference is that in football, the main object is military. In football, the battle is fought in the trenches. The field general, who is the quarterback, seeks to evade the blitz, soften up the enemy line with a pounding ground attack and aerial bombardment. He will miss bullet passes with the occasional going for the bomb in order to penetrate the enemy defenses and reach the end zone. In baseball, the object is to go home. And you know what? There's really no word in the English language that is quite like this word home. It can make you cry. You can think about home and it can make you sob or it can make you smile. And no no matter how old that you are or how much money that you have or how much success you may have achieved or how independent that you feel at this stage in your life, there's this little word called home that touches us at the deepest part of who we are. And it's why that during this time of year that we sing songs that have the word home in them, Christmas songs like this one, there's no place like home for the holidays or or how about this one i'll be where for christmas i'll be home for christmas see for many of you that word home that word home it it brings up things that just sort of makes you feel good on the inside because there's great memories associated with it and if you're able to go home and a lot of you can and a lot of you can if you can't go home uh this christmas season um you know, there are some people that you think about going home and you can hardly wait to get home. And there's others of you, quite honestly, I've been a pastor long enough to know that when you think about home, not everybody smiles. Not everybody gets happy. Not everybody has great memories because for a lot of people, home is not a place of peace. It is a place of strife. For a lot of people, home is not a joyful place to be, but it is a home that is filled with great tension. I've got, a, I've got a sister that's 11 months younger than, than I am, and that would put her right around the age that I will not mention. <laughs> but her and I was talking not too long ago about home, and we each remember this stage. I come from a broken home. My parents divorced when I was a ninth grader. And I can remember that and how painful that that was. And uh, Debbie and I were talking about that recently, not too long ago. And we just said, you know, it, it was strange for us that point forward because it was like, you know, once we had our own families, part of our own families, it's like you never went back home at Christmas. We'd go to mom's house or we would go to dad's house, but we never really went back home. And a lot of you the, the complication of your own family, you know, it's much like that for you. And I feel and I understand that. Did you know that the Bible actually has a, a lot to say about home? And we're going to look at that today. You know, uh, things like why do we long for home? Why is this longing, this intuitive sense of longing for home that all of us have? What, what is it about this idea of home that touches us so deeply in one way or another? Why is it that sometimes we feel an ache for home or we have a feeling of being homesick? In fact, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've read an article about a, a college football player. He has his roots in the state of Georgia where he played high school football, but he went over several states and he's played and he's a great athlete. And the story's come uh, come out that he's probably, he's not done it so, but, uh, you know, uh, going to move into the transfer portal. And for those of you who are like... What's that? Just ask somebody after the service what the transfer portal is. And the reason being, and this is a big, I mean, an unusually, even for college football, unusually big, tough player. But the reason that he's struggling right now, and it came out in the article, is he's actually homesick. And he's looking to go back home. You know, for me, I, uh, because he has roots in Georgia, I selfishly hope that he comes home to Georgia to play the remainder of his college career. But what is it about home? And why do we long for it? Just think about for it, Think about that for a moment. Home is where it actually all gets started, isn't it? It's where we get molded for better or for worse. It's where we receive our identity. Do you know that there are parts, whether you like it or not, there's a part of, of, of you and your personality and your temperament. There's parts of you that have been shaped because of the home that you grew up in obviously it's from home where we get our names we're given our our names at home and that and that happens and you know some of you if you've been around for a while you you've heard me mention this before but you know when um uh, when Brent was born, who's actually Jeffrey Brent, I wasn't really thinking at that point about ministry as much. It was more business, and um, and he's Jeffrey Brent. And then you know, I'm uh, when our, our second uh, son came along, I'm actually a, an upperclassman at Southeastern University, and it's dawned on me. I'm you know I'm going into pastoral ministry, and it's like um, you know our son has no biblical name whatsoever. He's Jeffrey. You're not going to find that in the Bible. It's a really really good name. But it's not in the Bible. Jeffrey Brent. We're like, we've got to make up for that with true. So it's we call him true, but his name is actually Andrew. That's New Testament. So we said, well, we've got Jeffrey Brent. No biblical reference whatsoever. We need to make it up with Andrew. So Andrew has a New Testament uh, first name, but he has an Old Testament middle name. So his name is actually Andrew Mareshallow Hashbath Sellers. And that's not true. I just made it up. Uh, you know, please. That Wouldn't that be cruel to do <laughs> as, a, as a parent? Hey, but we're going to call you mayor for short. Sure, just so... Uh but, you know, everything comes out of home. The Bible speaks to parents about being the place where our kids learn about God. And certainly we want to re- reinforce that at the church. But in reality, we're only going to have your kids here at church a, a day or two a week. And that's generally for about an hour. And they're with you every single day. So the reality is, if they're going to learn about God, mostly it's going to be because you're teaching them about God and you're talking about God and you're praying with them and you're teaching them about the scriptures. And there's a very important passage for ancient Israel. It's back in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And I want you to see both portions of it. Generally, we think of the first portion, but I want you to follow me for the whole thing. It says this, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. And and when the ancient Israelites would hear this, it resonated. It was like the most important uh, portion of the Jewish scriptures for them. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. But look at the next part. This is the part we often don't see. Repeat them again and again to your children. In other words, make sure that your kids know what their scripture says. You teach them about God and how to grow in God and know God. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. And it's like the scriptures is saying, you know, you just got to talk about this. It's just got to be a common language around your home where you're introducing your kids to God and they're learning about God and they're growing in God. And, and you're teaching them how to pray and you're teaching them and certainly as a church, we want to come behind and supplement that and reinforce that with you. And the scripture talks a lot, a lot about home. According to the scripture, home ought to be a place of safety and for a lot of you I know and I'm sad to even think about that but sometimes the safest place that should have been a reality for your life was not a very safe place. I want you to look at this verse. I I love this verse. This is Psalm 86, and and it says this. It's here on, on the screen. Even the sparrow has found a home. Think about that. That's how important a home is to God, that even the most defenseless creature in all of God's creation, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. And so a home is to be this place that is safe and a place that represents rest, a place that is peaceful. You sort of come into a domain and, and you're sort of protected. And I know, again, that that's not been a reality for a lot of you, but this way that God has intended it to be. Home is to be a great place. There's a survey that was conducted a number of years ago, and it was asked, and, you know, this would, I would not have given the same response, but I'll just give you what the re- results of the survey said. Uh, you know, they were asked, what is your most favorite room in the entire home? And dads, predominantly, not in totality, but predominantly, dads and kids, by the way, said that their most famous uh, favorite room in the home was actually the kitchen. The kitchen was their most Favorite room in the whole house. Do you know what it was for the majority of ladies? Some of you ladies are going to be like, yeah, I get that. They said their most favorite room in the whole house was actually the bathroom. It was a place where they hoped that they could find a little bit of sanity and quietness, a little bit of, of, of peace. But how many of you ladies know that sometimes even in the bathroom, it's not, mama, mama, let me in, let me in, let me in. Here's another thought about home. Home is a place where you're supposed to belong. It is that place where you ought to be welcomed. It's that place where you ought to be celebrated. Lantry, the five-year-old grandchild, had a had a uh, birthday uh, this past week, and it was celebrated. She started out uh, early that morning. I saw pictures of it with pancakes, and they looked pretty exotic. They were put together, you know, the whipped cream and stuff. I mean, I yeah, I don't even know how she was able to taste the pancakes, but it looked very creative. And then later, our cake, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to blow the picture up on my phone to look at the cake, and I'm like, what's on the cake? And it was, a, it was actually a reindeer cake, and I'm thinking, well, that's, that's a unique birthday cake, but the point was, it's what she wanted, and, and she was being celebrated, and that's what home should be like, and where we're accepted, and where we're loved. I really like what one particular writer has said. In his words, he says, at work, they can say they love you, but they can fire you. Home is where you can't get fired. That's a great statement, isn't it? In the early pages of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis, the scriptures talk about a place uh, that God created. And the language that is used is like this this place of home. The Bible refers to it as the Garden of Eden. And a lot of times we wonder, well, what was it about the Garden of Eden that made it so special? Was it because it was so beautiful? And it most definitely was beautiful. Everything about the Garden of Eden was beautiful in ways that you and I cannot even imagine. We can't describe in ways that we've never even seen. But the Garden of Eden was not special. It was not home because it was beautiful, although it was. It was home because God was there. God was there. We know that later there came the fall, and I'm not going to take the time to go down that path. But there was the fall, and it brought this utter separation between God and man. And God not wanted that, but but man, Adam and Eve, just said, "Hey, you know, we know that you want us to do it, uh, you know, your way, but we choose, therefore, on the other hand, to do it our way." And humanity has been doing that ever since, and it brought this chasm of separation between God and man that God had never wanted, and and yet you get to the, you know, you track it all the way out from Genesis to the last book of the old Testament, the prophet there spoke of a time when God was going to restore the home. I want you to see this. This is actually out of Malachi chapter four and he, God will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. It's like God saying, here's my plan. Here's my prerogative. This is what is my will. It is to bring about the restoration of the home. Home's a really important word. It's important to the heart of God. A great Christian writer by the name of Ray Vanderlaan says that in uh, says this, that in Jesus' teaching about God, that he spoke of God is wanting all of us to come home. And Vanderlaan takes it out a little ways. And I, I want to track with me on this for just a moment. Uh, Vanderlaan said that Jesus' teaching about God, his background in Jesus' day, it, it sort of emanated out of that, the culture in which Jesus lived, which was which was first century Palestine. And I'm going to ask you for the next couple of moments to give you some of your most undivided attention. And I know that there are lots of things this time of year that are clamoring for our attention. But this may very well be the most important part of this talk. Many people in that day, we're talking about Jesus this day, first century Palestine. And I want you to track with me on this. They lived in what was called an insula, I-N-S-U-L-A, an insula. Many people live that way. There would be a courtyard, this very large open area. In fact, it would be historically looking back at how people lived in Jesus's culture. It would be so open. It would be so big that uh, you could often put animals uh, in this courtyard area. And there would be cooking fires, places where most people would prepare their food. The dwelling places or the rooms where, peop- where people actually live would be built around this insula. And it would become home for what would be multiple generations. See, in our day, in our culture right now, you know, um, young men, young women, they grow up, they go off, they get married. But in that day, multiple generations would live all together in what was called this insula. Here is something else that needs to be mentioned about that particular time. Marriages were generally arranged by fathers. How do you like that, young ladies? The dad would arrange THE MARRIAGE. Now, let me ask you, let me pause, all right, because we got some dads here and you've got daughters that are not yet married. When you think about that, if you're a dad and you think about you got a daughter or daughters that are not yet married, but you would get the chance to pick their future husband all on their own. How many of you dads think that's a pretty good idea? Just wave your hand at me like this. Just wave. How many of you girls that are not yet married think that's a horrible idea that your dad would pick your future spouse? But that's the way it was. Fathers would get together. Think about this. This is what was going on. Jesus' day, first century Palestine. Dads would get together, and they would make all the arrangements. Scary, isn't it? They would hammer out all of the the details. They would negotiate the bridal price, and then the price would have to be paid. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because all we think about, all we know is what we know. And we think about, you know, a couple, they grow up and they they date and they, you know, they like each other and they get engaged and they set a wedding date. Uh, You know, I had a young couple between services come up and said, hey, I'm getting married later uh, next year. Can you do I'm like, email me. Let me check. I'd love, I'd be honored to do your ceremony. And that's generally the way that that it would happen. But keep in mind that when young couples, uh, again, they didn't go out, they didn't meet somebody, date for a while, get engaged. And then they just say, okay, we're getting married such and such day and we're going to need to find us a place to live. We're going to need to get an apartment or we've got a down payment. We've saved it or it was given to us and we've got to start our down payment. We're going to go buy a house. And that's how it works in our time and in our culture. But it did not work that way at this particular time. They did not set out to look for a house or an apartment. Instead, here's what would happen the paternal father would actually just add another room to the insula and the new couple would move right in. Come on in. The more the merrier. We're all going to live here together in the insula at the father's house. Now, be sure you catch this. It's this so important. How many of you are with me? Wave your hand. Forget that meal, that shopping list, what you've not yet bought. It's your fault. You'll have a chance to get it. What would happen is the groom would say to his bride and not yet married would say I'm going back to my father's house and as soon as our room is ready as soon as the room at the insula is ready guess what I'm coming back for you and when I come back for you I want you to be ready. And the son, over time, as the room was being built, would become eager. We're surprised by that, right? Not at all. And would ask his father, Dad, can I go and get her now? Can I go? Can I get my future bride? Can I get her and bring her here now? And the the dad would say, we're not quite ready yet. You know, there will come that time, but it's not quite time yet. But then that day would come. And the father would turn to his son and would say, Son, now is the day. Now is the time. I want you to go and get your bride. And the bride in anticipation has been waiting, so she is ready. The groom returns for his bride. The wedding takes place. And what happens? He takes his bride home. They go to the insula. They go to the father's house. Their room has been built and added on. One day, Jesus is having a conversation with some of his friends, and he shares with them some really important details about what's going to happen next in his life, and he looks at his closest followers, and he says, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm about to die, and they're like, what? And they are gripped by utter disappointment. In fact, they are wrecked emotionally because these that have followed Jesus have found a home in God God, and identity in Jesus, and they felt safe in Jesus, and now Jesus is uttering these words that are just blowing them away. It can't happen, but Jesus said, yes. I have to go. He reveals to them, in fact, that he would be leaving them soon. But as he's telling them this news that they're rocked by, he has some words for them. <laughs> this is so good. And when Jesus said this to his followers, they're like, okay, this makes sense. Look at this right here. This is out of John. Jesus said, don't let this throw you. And they're like, yeah, that's easy for you to say. We've been following you. We found our home with you. And now you're, you're going to die. You're leaving us. And Jesus said, you trust God, don't you? And they're like, yeah, we trust God. Jesus said, trust me. There's plenty of room for you in my father's insula, in my father's home. If that weren't so, would I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? Look at this part. I love it. I love it. And if I'm on my way to get your room ready, I'll come back and get you so you can live where I live and you can make the connection. And they made the connection. And and, and Jesus is like saying, listen, boys, you know, you've seen it. You live this way. You understand this is the dyna- dynamic of how families work and the adding on the home and and the and the groom goes and gets his bride and brings him home. And Jesus is like saying, yeah, you trust God. And they're like, yeah, trust in me. In my father's house, Jesus said, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm coming back and I'm taking you to home and we're going to be together forever. And they're like, oh, we get it now. We understand what you're trying to say. Jesus is headed to the cross and he will die there, but that is not the end of the story. And we talk about it every Easter that Jesus is coming back to life again, he said, and then he's going back to his father's house, to his father's insula, many rooms, and he's returning for his own. And when they heard this, they're like, we get it. We get it. This is groom talk. This is groom talk. This made sense to us. Well, if that's groom talk, would you like to see a little bride talk? This is not Jesus. This is actually Paul. And I want you to look at what Paul had to say. This is his first letter to Corinthian believers. He said, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Look at this now. For God bought you with a high price. This is bridal price. So you must honor God with your body. And you know what, friends? This is why. This is why a little baby born in Bethlehem, then having grown up, would pay with his own life the broad price so that heaven could be your forever home. And some of you are ready, but others of you are not. There's a lot of you that are right here in this, in, in this building right here that, that you're ready that if Jesus were coming back now, you're ready, but perhaps not all of you are. There are many of you that are watching online and you're like, You're ready. If I were to ask you, Do you know? Do you know? Do you know that you're ready? You'd say, Absolutely, I know that I'm ready. But others of you would say, I'm not. And a lot of people try a lot of different ways to get to God, and a lot of people just have this mentality, and it may go back to the way that they were raised, and they just say, here's what I need to do. I just need to be sure that I just carry out to its completion the good works plan. In other words, you know, I know that, you know, I'm sort of wayward, and I do my own thing, and God wants me to do this, but I'm going to do that, and you know, but if I just do more good stuff, and I'm just going to do enough good works, and hope, 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 hope that when I get to the end of time, and God just pulls out this heavenly glorified scale, and He weighs out all my good deeds that they're going to outweigh my bad deeds and somehow God's going to say on the basis of that you get to come into heaven. But that's not how it's going to work. You say, okay, well, I've got another way of approaching God. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on the self-improvement plan. And I'm just going to try to become a better person. And I'm I'm going to give it everything that I've got. No, I'm going to mess up a lot. But, you know, at least if I'm better than most of the other people that I know that are in my family or the people where I work and I know how they live. But if, if, you know, if if my plan's a little bit better, and, and I'm just saying to you that that will not work. You were bought with a price. And it cost Jesus a whole lot. You know how much it cost him? His whole life. And he was willing to pay it because he wants to spend forever in heaven with you. I hope you live a long time. I really do. I hope you live to be 100. That would be short-lived compared to how I hope, how long I hope I'll live. 128, but who's counting? But even if you live to be 100, in comparison with eternity. It's that big. A number of years ago, Rick Warren wrote this great book. I hope you'll pick it up and read it sometime. The Purpose of Christmas. In it, he said, and I'll read, God's Christmas gift to you has three qualities that make it very unique. First, it is the most expensive gift that you'll ever receive. It's priceless. Jesus paid for it with his life. Secondly, it's the only gift you'll ever receive that will last forever. Finally, finally, He said it's an extremely practical gift, one that you will use every day for the rest of your life. You know, we mentioned in Genesis, remember that God prepared a place that ought to feel like home, the Garden of Eden. Fall, Adam and Eve, we're going to do it our way. We get over to Malachi, we're about to transition some years later into the New Testament. Malachi said there's coming a time when God is going to restore the home got to turn the hearts of parents toward kids and kids toward their parents and God is all about home. But then you take that on out to what is the very last book in the entirety of the Bible, the Revelation and even the Revelation. It talks about a home that all of us deep down, even sometimes we're not even conscious of it, a home that we long for. And I want you to see this and then we're going to close. Look at this. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven Look at the language, like a bride beautifully dressed for her groom or husband. I heard a loud voice, uh, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home. Look at this. God's home is now among his people. That's part. He will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. So you're going to have a home Whatever that home may look like for you, you've got a home, home you were raised in or the home you're being raised in. You're going to develop a home or you have developed a home on your own or raised kids there. But there's a home that all of us ought to long for and that is to be home with God forever and forever and forever because your next life is going to last so much longer than this one. I want to ask you a question And then we're done. Do you know? Do you know that you know that you know that you're ready for a heavenly home? You say, Well, Jeff, you can't even know that. Man, how can you even say that? I hope so. I'm just, you know, I'm I'm gambling on it. I'm 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 hoping, I'm hoping against hope that I I will make it. Who who can really know until they stand before God? Oh, you can know. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you're forgiven. You haven't tried a good words plan or a self-improvement plan. You've just been the recipient of God's amazing grace and mercy and forgiveness and this wonderful gift that we call salvation. I remember a time in my life as a teenager when if you had walked up to me and said, do you know, do you know that you know that you know that you're know that you ready for heaven? And I would have probably hung my head and would have said, no, I don't. No, I don't. Hope, hope, but I don't know. I know now. You can know now. Whether you're in this building or watching online, I don't want you to face another Christmas without knowing that you're ready to spend eternity in your forever home with God. Jesus made all provision. It's not what you can do or what you know you can make happen. It's what Christ has already done for you. You say, well, in order to get to heaven, I've got to do this, this, this. No, it's what Jesus has already done for you when he was nailed to our cross. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to sing a Christmas song together, and Pastor Randy will dismiss us. But right now, if you want to know that you know that you know that you're in right standing with God and ready for your forever home in heaven, then I want you to just say this. Just pray it in your heart or your mind. God, I want to come home. I want to come home. I've sinned sin way more than I should I hate that I've sinned as much as I have and I need forgiveness I know that I've been bought with a price a price that I could never ever pay on my own I want to spend eternity with you in heaven my forever home and so right now here's what I do I receive you as my savior I receive you as my leader and the forgiver of my sins and with your help, I will live for you for the rest of my life. While your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer with me just a moment ago, and you minute, just put your hand up real high, real high, real high. Let me see it. Yeah, I'm so glad you did. So many, I'm so, so glad you did. All right, you can put it back down. And God received us. And God loves us. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing a great Christmas song together. Don't forget next week, we're going to pray, we're going to believe. God's going to bring a miracle into your life. Thank you for being here today. Let's sing this song out together. And Merry Christmas to you.
1: This we'll come the oh come let us adore you join us at the north campus this coming week for our christmas eve service god bless you guys